You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be in verses 12 and 13 today. Um, it occurred to me I did not set my watch to do not disturb, so I'm going to do that real quick, and that way we will not be disturbed, hopefully. Um, as you're turning to Philippians 2, 12 and 13, I, I want to express our thanks again, my thanks again for last week, and I uh, did so through Facebook, but I know not everyone has Facebook, but thank you for uh, the pastor's appreciation, thank you for the love and and the support you showed through that, and then uh, Sunday night, if you missed our uh, trunk of treat, hallelujah, hallelujah. Uh, party last week. Uh, I walked into a fellowship hall full of people singing and a birthday cake and even more gifts uh, for my birthday. So thank you guys very much for that. Um, If you noticed uh, Starbucks stock raised significantly this week, uh, because you all purchased enough Starbucks cards for me that um, if you have stock in it, you probably were handsomely rewarded for that. And uh, I've I've used it a couple times already this week. And if you don't have the app, you don't use that, uh, you're not familiar with how that works. Basically, you pull it up on your phone and it shows the balance and you scan it and I've had a couple of Starbucks workers go whoa you know like you really like coffee don't you and I'm like well I got some people who really like me and know that I really like coffee so that's how it came to be about Philippians 2 12 and 13 uh, we want to talk today about working out what God works in about working out what God works in. Uh, the word work is a key word in these two verses today, and it's really a continuation of something that Paul says earlier in the letter. If you've got your Bibles open, look at the first chapter uh, and look at verse 6, if you will, as Paul's beginning to uh, be in thanksgiving and prayer for the church at Philippi, for the Christians there. He says this in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He he makes the the statement in chapter 1 that God who began a great work in you, and we can debate all we want to, does God work and then a person believes, or does a person believe and then God works? And uh, I, I think John 3 is a beautiful chapter in the Gospels because John 3 gives us really both sides of that coin. The first eight verses of John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, and Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit uh, causes a person to be born again, and and that it's a mystery, that that he he moves as if the wind, we don't know where he comes from, we don't know where he goes, but he does his thing, and he causes us to be born again, but yet in that same chapter in John 3, when, when Jesus gets into verses 16, 17, and 18, and talks about God's plan for the world and for man, He makes it very clear, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So John 3 gives us this perfect balance that, yes, there's God doing a work in us, but, yes, it also requires of us a work on our own part, specifically there for belief. When we read these two verses today, we're going to see these are the three examples. The one that we're going to see in verse 12, this phrase, to work out. And it means to put something into effect. 
It means to, to carry out something to its completion. Um, it usually in, is describing a very intense effort to do so. Um, it's a phrase that was used in Paul's day, in the New Testament day, uh, for describing people who would go into uh, mineral mines or mines where there were precious metals and the work that it would take for them to extract that which was precious out of those places. And that's the phrase work out in verse 12. And when we get to verse 13, we're going to see the word work and the phrase to work. That God does a work and he does that so that we could do his will and work. And that has to do with function. That has to do with us performing as God expects because of the work he's doing for us. The reality is we come out of the last two or three Sundays of Philippians 2 and we've talked about uh, how to have unity and we've talked about how to serve in humility and we've talked about how to be obedient and how to follow Jesus' example. And perhaps you've been the last couple of weeks going, well, how do we do this? How, how do we follow Jesus' example? How do, we, how do we strive for his humility and his obedience? How do we work for the unity here? In this church, as Paul was asking them to do there in Philippi. And essentially, these two verses give us a good answer. Let's read verses 12 and 13 from Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Part of Paul's answer begins here by pointing us back to, that's the therefore, or some translations say wherefore or something else, but it's pointing back to the example of Jesus Christ that we saw in verses 5 through 11. And he's pointing back to that as the example for us moving forward. And out of that example, it's this issue of obedience. Look again at what he says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, pointing back to this issue of obeying. Obedience has always been a hallmark of what God expected from his people. Obedience to his word, obedience to his commands, obedience to his example. We can go all the way back, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Moses is giving this, this beautiful recap before uh, the, they go into the promised land. Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land because of an act of disobedience. But he's given this beautiful recap of what God has done and how he's worked in the people of Israel and, and all the things that have gone through in the course of the history. And in Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28, for example, he says this, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from that way that I'm commanding to go after other gods that you've not known. All the way back into the story of Israel, the issue for God's people was that God expected obedience. Jesus uses words, not necessarily obedience or obey, but he uses words that are similar. For example, in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
In that same chapter, John 14, verses 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Even though the words obey and obedience are not in there, that's essentially what Jesus is teaching. If you love him, if we love him, we will keep his word, keep his commandments. And then in other places, like in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles have been arrested for preaching the name of Jesus and teaching the name of Jesus. And they're brought before the council in Acts chapter 5, and they're charged, again, not to teach in the name of Jesus, not to upset things, essentially. And they respond in Acts 5, 29 through 32. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. And don't, don't let this slide by you. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Obedience is a centerpiece. It is a crucial point to someone saying, I belong to God. I am God's child. I am God's friend, I'm God's son, I'm God's daughter. We are a people of God. Obedience from the very beginning all the way to the very end is a crucial outworking of what it means to say you belong to God. And Paul gives them this example here. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence. He apparently was, when he was with the church at Philippi in various times, he apparently was an encouragement to their behavior of obedience. But now he calls upon them, even as he's absent, they should ramp it up. Even as he's absent from the church, their obedience should, go, should grow greater. Why? Because their obedience wasn't to him. Their obedience is to God. He was a messenger, he was a teacher, he was one that that helped get all that started, but their obedience was not to him, their obedience was to God. The New American Commentary says it this way, the church members were to solve their problems as an act of obedience to God. And so again, he points us back to those verses 5 through 11, and he says, in that obedience, looking again at verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out? Uh, I texted Alyssa Wednesday or Thursday this week as I was preparing, and I had about four or five different phrases before I settled on the one that I gave you today that we're working out what God works in. But I said, which, which one of these three do you think are the most, most easy to understand? Or, you know, which, which, which one of these three you think I ought to pick? And she talked about that, this one that I gave you today, and she said, well, that one makes me think about going to the gym. And I said, perfect, that's what I wanted to think. Because there is this piece of the Christian life called the spiritual disciplines. Obedience. Prayer, Bible study, being generous with our, our self, our times, our talents, our money, on and on and on. We could point to all kinds of different, different things that are spiritual disciplines. And just as you think about going to a gym and having to have the discipline to go when you don't feel like it, to have the discipline to not go to the gym and work out for 30 minutes and then go back home and eat an hour's worth of Halloween candy, 
That kind of counter affects one another, right? Just as we have to have those disciplines here as we talk about obedience, as Paul talks about obedience, we understand that this is part of a spiritual discipline for us to work out our salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. Theologically speaking, salvation is seen in three different ways or three different tenses. One, that when we say yes to Jesus and we exchange our life for his and we come in faith and trust to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are saved in that moment. It's the big theological word called justification. In that moment, you're made right before God through Jesus Christ. Then there becomes this issue of salvation called sanctification. And it just means that as we live through this life on earth, we become more and more like Jesus. It's what Paul wrote in Romans 8.29, that we become conformed to the image of God's Son. And then lastly, one glorious day when Christ returns or when we go to be with him and we receive these glorified bodies that are no longer harmed and no longer affected by sin and forever made perfect in his eyes for all of eternity, we will finally be saved to the uttermost glorification. So we've been justified. We await on being glorified, but right now we're living in being sanctified. And being sanctified means we work out what God has given us. C.S. Lewis put it very simply in his book, Mere Christianity. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. The purpose of becoming a Christian is not to be a part of a club. It's not to be a part of a social group. It's not to increase our social standing or make people think we feel better about us. Or It's not even just, well, yay, I don't have to go to hell. It's that I become like Christ. It's that he saves me from the punishment of due for my sins, and then he sets me on a course, on a journey, to become more and more like him until the day he comes back or I go to be with him. And this is a lifelong journey, a lifelong spiritual discipline that we work out. We don't work for but we work out. How do we work it out? He says here, we work it out with fear and trembling. This word fear is a word that means to have profound respect or awe or admiration for someone. Specifically in this case, it would be to have those things for God. It's used, for example, in Luke 5, 26, when Jesus heals the paralytic man. And it says that all who were around and witnessed that were filled with awe. They were filled with fear, respect, admiration for what Jesus had done. But he uses another word here in Philippians 2, fear and trembling. And quite literally, trembling is to be quivering. It's the same word that's used in Mark 16 when Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene and Salome came to anoint Jesus' body with the spices. And they encountered an angel in an empty tomb who said, he's not here and it says that they were filled with trembling and astonishment. Why fear and trembling? I think Paul is pointing us back to what he wrote of just a few verses earlier. If you've got your Bibles open, just look back up to verses 9 and 10. And we talked last week about the fact that this is both a here and now and future understanding 
But this, remember what he writes about Jesus. God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why fear and trembling? Because what Paul is saying is what the rest of the Bible is saying. That there is no other. There is no other. There are not a a multitude of gods that we can pick and choose from. There's not a, a God that's greater. There's not a Savior that's greater. There's not another way to salvation. This is the only way. And so in a fear and awe and admiration and respect and a quivering, not from a fearful position like someone's getting ready to get beat, but just from an understanding of how majestic and incredible this Jesus is, we work out our salvation The King James commentary says it this way, that we live this way with a wholesome but serious caution. A.T. Robertson from right here in Kentucky several, several decades ago said this, it's a nervous and trembling anxiety to do right. And I don't believe Paul intends here for us to be stricken with awe and fear and trembling so that we're unable to have joy in our life. But I also don't believe that he's advocating a, it really doesn't matter if I'm obedient kind of a thing. But he's advocating something in the middle. Paul himself knew in Romans 7, what does he tell us? I want to do right, but I don't. He self-confessed that in his writings to the Romans in Romans chapter 7. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. But he goes on to give us a beautiful truth there in Romans 8 that the key to fighting that battle was to be in the right mind. Going back to the very beginning of chapter 2 where he talks about us having this mindset of Jesus, this attitude of Jesus. And in Romans 8 he says it this way, that we live according to the Spirit if we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And the things of the Spirit remind us of just how holy and righteous and big and vast and inexpressible and unconditionally joyful it is to be in the presence of God. Yes, we're called his sons. Yes, we're called his daughters. Yes, in Scripture, we're even called his friends. But he is not some mere person or God who we just throw our arm around and hang out with for a selfie. He is God. He is the Savior. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. And he brought this world and all this universe up and one day he will bring all of it down. And we work out our salvation with that understanding of who he is. Paul anticipates the question here, I believe, exactly how do we do this again? And look at what he says there in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why should we be obedient? Why should we, in the context of Philippians 2, seek unity? Why should we follow the example of Jesus in in humility and servanthood? Because God is working in us to produce that in our lives. God never gives a commandment, but what he doesn't also provide the enablement. 
He does not ask anybody to do anything, but what he doesn't say, I'm going to provide you everything you need specifically for us as New Covenant Christians through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to do it. So because God works in us, if we're not seeing this sort of working out of our salvation, it really only gives us two logical conclusions. One, that we're not saved. Or two, that we are saved and he is doing this work in us, but we're not demonstrating it, thereby ignoring him and his work. And again, again here it's in hum- humility and unity and obedience, and, but understand it's through the, co- the core and the, the context of all of our lives that God is working to do his perfect will and work in our lives. And if it's not being demonstrated by our lives, it's either because he's not working in us or he is and we're ignoring him. And let me remind you who Paul writes to here. If you've got your Bible open, go back to the very first verse of the first chapter where Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, separating the overseers and the deacons doesn't mean he, don't, he doesn't think they're saints, okay? But it means what he's saying is to all of you who make up the body of the church in Philippi, both you who are members and, and, and part of that church, part of that community, and you who are in leadership as overseers and deacons, to the saints, I write all the rest of this to you. Just a few weeks ago, I tried to remind us in our message, lost people act the way they act because they're lost. Unchurched people act the way they act because they're unchurched. But those of us who say that we are saints, those of us who say that God has changed us, those of us who say that Jesus has performed a new work in us and has made us new and made us a new creation, there is expectation of me and of you and of everybody else who's ever said that. In one of our theology study classes, I think it was last month, I, I used this example. If I were to, to come to you today and say, the spirit of Michael Jordan has entered me. And then we went and found a basketball court. If I'm not dunking all over you and making every shot and making you look silly, you would begin to question, I don't really know that the spirit of Michael Jordan's in him. There might be another Michael. When we say... That Jesus has changed us. When we say that we've been made a new creation, when we say yes to places in Scripture that talk about us being born again, what we are saying to a world is we believe there's a spirit of the living God indwelling within us, and if we are not working that out with fear and trembling because God is working it in us, then we're either lying or we're ignoring. And Paul says, God does this. In obedience, we work out our salvation for God works in you. Our responsibility is our response to God's ability. Our responsibility is our response to God's ability. God supplies the working power, not to take place of our effort, but to enhance it and to make it excellent. And typically, sometimes we, we fall into kind of two categories. We either fall into the let go and let God, and where we're just going to sit back and we just hope God does a work in our life and not realize he is doing a work in our lives. Or we go to the other extreme and we think it all depends on us. And if we're not righteous enough, holy enough, don't do enough churchy things, 
And what Paul is prescribing here is a middle ground that God works in you, supplies the power to you, that we then have a responsibility to respond to. And he does this as he ends verse 13 with this phrase, God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work, those words, those terms there have to do with purpose and have to do uh, with performance. God's purpose is to work in us for his good pleasure. Our response is to work as he's working in us, to work out what he's working in us for his good pleasure. Here, of course, again, the immediate context is unity and humility and obedience. But we could say the same thing about love and compassion and forgiveness and our giving and our patience and our self-control and on and on and on. That all the various things in our life that God is working in us, that we might work it out. And we're we're doing that. He's doing that. So we do that. So that he delights in seeing his children succeed for his good pleasure. Those of you who have had children or have grandchildren in your life, you know what it's like when that child finally does whatever it is they've been trying to do for months. And they finally get it right the first time. And you know how you beam, and you know how now you put it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else. How proud you are. God delights in seeing us succeed. He delights in seeing us take the work he's doing in us and then doing that work outwardly to show everyone the truth of who he is. And our ultimate goal should be to please God. Uh, it's amazing how frequently in the New Testament this type of thought is stated. I'm going to give you a whole list here of Scripture verses, and I'm not going to read each Scripture verse, but I'm just going to give you kind of the, the, the gist of what they say. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, Paul's writing about marriage and singleness, and he talks about the fact that single persons are able to fix their minds solely on pleasing the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, in his next letter to the Corinthians, he says, whether we're home or away, whether we're living on the earth or whether we're living with him in eternity, we must make it our aim to please him. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, we're commanded to walk as children of light and to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In Colossians 1, 10, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, we've been approved by God, Paul says, to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, do it more and more, Paul encourages them. He encourages Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's the place where he talks about praying and praying for kings and authorities and those who are in high places and all people. And he says this, this praying for these people is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He tells Timothy in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, talking about widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to show godliness to their household and make return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In Hebrews 11, he talks about Enoch having been taken up from the earth and says he was commended as having pleased God. And he reminds us without faith, it's impossible to please him. 
In Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such things are pleasing to God. And then in verse 1 John 3, 22, whatever we ask, we receive because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I don't know if you ever thought about the fact of how much the Bible talks about how our goal in all these various ways of life are to be to please him. That's not even taking into consideration other scriptures that don't use the word pleasing, but certainly have that ingrained within them. Pleasing God over everybody else. And so we aim to please God. We aim to work out our salvation because he works in us to will and to work his good pleasure. That what we do pleases him. And daily we should be asking God today What is before me? What do you want me to do to please you? Now, some will reject this and say, oh, but isn't there that one place in Scripture where it says God will give you the desires of your heart? Isn't God all about pleasing you? Well, it does say that, but the very first part of that verse in Psalm 37 says this, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. And the intent of it is that we delight ourselves in the Lord so much that he then becomes our heart's desire. That nothing else in this world stirs our heart like God. Nothing else in this world captures our imagination quite like God. Nothing else in this world captures our obedience and our service and our humility and everything else that the Bible talks about like God because we want to please him. We want to be, as Jesus taught, in that position where when we see him, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we aim to please God because others are never rarely pleased. Next week's scripture, we'll see that a little bit, what our role is in a world that doesn't acknowledge God and how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to be in the midst of that world. But I want you to understand, too, sometimes within the own, our own church communities, people aren't pleased when we set nothing more in our life but to please God. What are you, some kind of holy roller? Some kind of self-righteous, better than me? Or maybe moved by your obedience, God moves you to ask for and to receive forgiveness and to break down the things that are dividing us. And then you hear this. There wasn't any need in airing that out. We were fine. No need for everybody to know. We strive to please God above all others. And we strive to please him working out what he has worked in. I'll leave you with this today. There was a 20th century French author, aviator. I'll try not to butcher this name. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And he wrote a book called The Little Prince. Perhaps you've had to read it maybe in some of your literature classes or something. And there's a quote that's attributed to him in that book, and, and the, the direct French to English translation's a, a, a little dicey, but essentially here's kind of what it says. 
He writes there, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to gather the wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. If you want to build a church, if you want to build a kingdom movement, if you want to build a life that is pleasing to God individually and collectively, we must yearn for and take pleasure in the vast and endless God. We do not divide up the work. We do not assign the tasks. We merely give him our all. And nothing less in any place in our lives. And we long for the vast and endless God. We work out what he works in. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.